we've been taught this from the youngest of ages, that it is possible to solve a problem of stress with food or with money or with medicine or drugs, right? We're even teaching this to children by saying, oh, well, you can't focus. So instead of training you how to concentrate, which we've never taught you before, we're going to give you medicine to take for life. Mm. And then we're going to give you a diagnosis first that says you are unable to focus. And it doesn't matter whether we've actually considered if this person's ever been taught to focus or not, right? We're just doing a symptom analysis assessment. And then when we're saying, okay, if you meet these symptom criteria, whether you've been formally taught how to do what we're asking you to do or not, we're going to diagnose you and label you with a disorder. And then we're going to give you a medicine that tells the person from a very young age, if you don't take this medicine every day, you're not going to be able to function at the level that we expect you to function in society. Right. And that's a hugely disempowering way to bring people into the world as adults. I'm Doug Bopes, personal trainer, best-selling author, and entrepreneur, and I'm on a mission to help others become the best version of themselves. So I'd like to welcome you to the Adversity Advantage podcast, where we will help you use obstacles, failures, and setbacks to give you that edge needed for success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life on how they overcame trials and turned them into triumphs. So please sit back, relax, and get ready to be absolutely blown away by some of the wisdom and stories you're about to hear. Welcome back to another episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst, and today's guest is Dr. David Rabin. And Dr. Rabin is a neuroscientist, he's a psychiatrist, and a health tech entrepreneur who's been studying the impact of chronic stress in humans for more than a decade. He is also the co-founder and chief innovation officer at Apollo Neuroscience, which has developed the first scientifically validated wearable technology that actively improves energy, focus, and relaxation using a novel touch therapy that signals safety to the brain. Dr. Dave has always been fascinated by consciousness and our inherent ability to heal ourselves from injury and illness. With that said, he has specifically focused his research on the clinical translation of non-invasive therapies for patients with treatment-resistant illnesses like PTSD and substance use disorders. Dr. Rabin is the co-founder and executive director of the Board of Medicine, a 501c3 nonprofit organization of physicians and scientists, establishing the first peer-reviewed evidence-based clinical guidelines for the production and safe use of currently unregulated alternative medicines, including plant medicine. The Board of Medicine trains and certifies healthcare providers and provides quality control standards for complementary and alternative medicines to support high-quality clinical research, best practices, and risk reduction. In today's conversation, we talk all things stress, including the different types and which one is actually good for you. Dr. Rabin shares exactly what happens on a biological and physiological level when we are experiencing stress and the different tools you can use to better manage it. We also get into the reoccurring theme of anxiety and a few specific coping skills that will instantly reduce it. Dr. Rabin explains what he believes is the root cause of addiction and what he feels is the biggest flaw in addiction treatment. Dr. Rabin also discusses the benefits of plant medicine and other alternative treatments, how to do it, and most importantly, how to know if it's appropriate for you. So let's get this conversation going and welcome Dr. David Rabin to the Adversity Advantage podcast. Dr. Rabin, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. I've been super excited to talk to you for, for quite some time because you're one of the world's leading experts on all things stress response, 
You do a lot of work on substance use disorders and addiction, anxiety, and just mental health overall. And you have some I don't want to say unique approaches because I think these approaches have been around for a little while, but you definitely have gone into the alternative, some alternative modalities of treating stress, treating PTSD, addiction, and that sort of thing, which we're definitely going to get into. But I think a good place for us to start is I, I know people understand, I think on a basic level, what stress is, but I think from a physiological perspective. Um, perspective, maybe they aren't as familiar with it. So I think a good a good starting place for us is if you could just explain in your understanding to the audience, like what what's actually going on inside of our body when we're feeling stressed, and along those lines, what's the difference between say being stressed like in a moment, like acute stress versus just chronic stress where your body is just completely shut down. That sounds like a great place to start. So I guess thinking about stress, the there's a couple of different things to consider. So the first thing is that not all stress is bad. Mm. And this is a very common misconception when we talk about stress and people always are generally fall into like an all or nothing look view of stress, but stress is, is a large group of tons of different experiences that we have. I think the best way to think about it is you divide it into two categories. Category one is what we call you stress, EU stress. And this is good stress that forces us or pushes us to grow, to become stronger and to develop new skills and adapt and basically be closer to our, our fullest potential, right? And then there's distress, which is stress that per we perceive or our bodies or minds perceive as actual threat or perceived threat mm. that sets off the fight or flight response in a way that results in displeasure or discomfort or everything to do with distress, which over time causes disease. And, and this is something that we've known since Hippocrates times way back. And also Eastern medicine, you know, has talked about this for a long time in terms of preventative care and, and you know, using more natural techniques to reduce distress and enhance eustress, which is what pushes us into a growth-focused flow state kind of life. That said, Western medicine has struggled to, to teach about these terms in a way that we can actually incorporate into our lives. So the goal is to focus on approaching stress from the standpoint. We can't avoid stress, right? That's the bottom line is it's unavoidable. Stress itself is unavoidable in, in both categories. What we can do is try to view what comes at us as as much in a use stress category as possible so that we're constantly trying to grow from every challenge that we face rather than resulting in, in approaching it in a way that results in development of distress, discomfort, and disease. I, I think stress has has gotten a bad rap because I think when people think of stress, they think of it, oh, I'm stressed. I'm so stressed out. Like it's hard for me to think. My sleep's off. I'm anxious. I'm gaining weight. Like all these negative things that come from stress. But as you said a few seconds ago, we need stress and it's not going to go away. Like we need to stress our bodies for for them to grow if we're going to gain muscle. We need to stress ourselves in a way if we're going to challenge ourselves to become better. We need to put ourselves out there and experience some level of stress if we're going to, you know, ask somebody out on a date or get a new job, like all these things, right? But I think what's happened is on a primal level, it seems like we've been wired to respond to stress 
for in a, in a way of survival. Like we're trying to, to run from a tiger or we're trying to escape death, which I think is how, if I understand correctly, our brains have been wired to handle stress. But I would also say in the same context, we've known that I think for years that this is why we respond the way we do when stress happens. But it doesn't seem like to me that the way human beings have uh, respond to stress has gotten a lot better. I think as a matter of fact, it's probably gotten worse over the years. Have you, have you seen that? Or do you, do you think it's going the other way? Or is it just something that's just, this is just the way it is our response to it. Like the reaction that goes on in the body is just, it's biological and it's just not something, something that's not going to change potentially for hundreds of years. Great question. So I think the, the best way to think about it is that the body, as you said, has evolved and the, the body, when I say the body, I mean the body and the mind, because right. the body and the mind are intricately and intimately interconnected. They are not separate. This is a, a part of medicine that we're also coming back to full circle, which is now we know if the mind is, is sick or distressed for an extended period of time, it causes physical distress. If the body is distressed for an extended period of time and, and not addressed, that causes mental and emotional distress and that they are therefore intimately connected. So we, so th- talking about when I say the body, I mean the mind, body, the whole person. And when we experience stress in, in certain ways that in an environment where we have one thing we have to focus on, like I need to deal with the work responsibilities I have right now. And I'm going to take all of my uh, effort available and focus on this work task or this personal development goal or this or taking care of my family or whatever it might be and focus on that, then that is the task that then we attribute all of our attentional resources to. At the same time, what ends up happening is it's not just one thing that we have to focus on. It's it's a hundred different things, mm-hmm. right? And meanwhile, while all those other things are going on, our phones are going off and beeping and we're behind on our emails and we're stuck in traffic, right? And all of these other things are going on. Our kids are screaming in the backseat. And what happens is that there's a part of our brain called the amygdala, which is mi- hundreds of millions of years old, going back to ancient reptiles, which was why we often call it the reptilian part of our brain which is at the core of the emotional nervous system. And this, the amygdala is responsible for lots of things, but particularly the best way to think about it is threat versus not threat, threat versus safety. And when we are experiencing lots of overwhelming stimuli in, the, in our environment, in the jungle or in the old you know, ancient world before technology, that would have been a sign that we are potentially in uh, in a potential state of threat because there's too much going on. We need to get to a safe place where we're isolated from all this chaos. It could be a storm. It could be, you know, animals chasing us. It could be a lack of food, water, air, et cetera. However, we don't often have those same challenges to survival. Currently we have, you know, the emails and the too many life responsibilities and the news and COVID and all this other stuff. And so all of those responsibilities and stimuli basically create an overwhelming amount of input to our emotional nervous system, which sets our amygdala, that fear response to go off when it shouldn't necessarily be going off. So it starts to signal threat 
even though we're actually physically safe, we don't have the same real survival threats going on. Maybe they're legal, maybe they're financial, but they're not going to kill us right in this moment. So having that threat response go off in those situations is actually very much disadvantageous to us. And it results in compromised decision-making, compromised performance, and most of all, compromised recovery. Right. And so by practice, so that's where I think some of these techniques that we talk about, I'm sure that you talk about a lot as well. And, you know, basically taking care of yourself helps to build the resilience that allows us to adapt to whatever comes and, and not let that fear response turn on, or, or at least keep the fear response in check so that it doesn't turn on when it doesn't, it isn't needed. Yeah. And I, and I think when most people say that they're stressed out and again, feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, it's not because they're suffering from acute stress. It's more the chronic stress. They've just let all these stressors just stack up in their lives and they've mismanaged their response to it. And they've turned to things like food, drugs, excessive amounts of alcohol, just not moving their body, not sleeping well, creating all this toxicity in their life that has just completely damaged them on a physical level. And then it's caused obviously negative effects on their immune system, joint pain, stuff with their muscles, like all these things that all of a sudden they hit this point and they just are completely tapped out and burned out. I mean, I think we've all, if you're listening to this, I'm sure we've all experienced this where you're having sleepless nights, you're tired, but you're anxious, or you're just feeling completely off. You're not motivated. You're, you're fatigued all the time. You're just eating a ton of sugar. Your relationships are suffering. We've all experienced that. And I think if we can learn to manage those acute moments of stress better, I think it sets ourselves up to be able to handle the stress that life brings us in the future a lot more efficiently, like you were saying a minute ago. So let's talk about it. So what are, I know you're a neuroscientist and you have this, you're a psychiatrist. So you have, I think, I feel like you have a very good grip on what actually can work for most people when it comes to the, to this stuff. So when somebody's experiencing that fight or flight, they get an email that, you know, might've upset them or they got into a, a fight with their partner or something happened with one of their kids. And they're just, super anxious and they're stressed, like what can someone do? So there's lots of things to do in those moments. I think if we understand what we're talking about here and really take it to heart that our body does not know the difference between too many emails or too many responsibilities or too much on our mind and a lion chasing us in the jungle, then which is actually what our body does not know the difference. Our body responds to threat as threat. And if we perceive threat as an email, then our body will respond to it the same way that it will to a predator, then what really is required of us in those moments is something as simple as reminding ourselves that we're actually safe. Mm. And safety becomes the critical factor because when you do activities of any kind, whether it's deep breathing for a few minutes, just, just taking that or, or putting your hand on your body, or putting pressure on your chest, rubbing your, uh, your hands, your palms with your fingers can also do it. Rubbing the inside of the outside of your ear can, can do this where it sends a signal through the skin or through the nose and the breath respiratory pathway that to the emotional brain the, and that amygdala area included that says, if I have the time to pay attention intentionally to this feeling of air coming into my nose and mouth and lungs and, or to the feeling of my hand on my chest, or the feeling of Apollo vibrating on my body, then I can't possibly be running from a lion right now, mm -hmm. right? And that response is completely subconscious for most people, meaning it's beneath our awareness. So just 
taking in that breath, we may not consciously feel safe right away, but by taking that breath and just focusing our entire attention on that breath, it instantly sends a subconscious looping safety signal to the emotional brain that reminds us that we're safe in that moment. And that starts to within that within seconds to minutes can start to slow down our heart rate, slow down our sweat response, slow down, decrease our blood pressure, and, and even decrease the speed of our thinking, the speed of our thoughts. And that's what is the most reliable technique for most people that averts. And we train people to do this all the time to avert a panic attack, for instance. Now, is there a cadence with that breath or is it just like just breathing in and out like one to one, like breathe in for one second, breathe out for one second, something like that? That's that's a great question. So, I mean, there's there's infinite breathing techniques, right? right? And and there's lots of different techniques that work for different mental states. Personally, I and 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 clinically, you know, in my practice, the technique that I teach the most, I can't remember the name of it, but it's is a technique that a lot of people discover on their own, and it's just basically doing a five to seven second inhale and holding for a second, and then doing a five to seven second exhale. Mm. And then, oh, and then as you do that, you just repeat it and then, and then try to, to make the inhale and exhale as long as you possibly can. So every time you do, you repeat, try to increase it by a second. Got it. And, and what will happen is at, it is it's, it shows you that you're in control of the fundamental way that you interact with your environment, which is breath. Mm. And once you can show yourself you're in control of your breath, it, it automatically re-triggers the brain to enter a state of feeling, of focusing on what you have control over. Anxiety, by definition, is spending our precious time, which we only have a limited amount of time of, attending to things we don't have control over. So if we redirect our attention to breath, it's a twofer, right? You get the benefit of reminding the emotional brain that, that we're safe enough to focus on this breath so we can't be running from a lion. And at the same time, it redirects our attention to things that we have control over and away from things that we don't have control over. And in effect, the more time of our day that we spend focusing on things we have control over, the more in control we feel. Right. And just speaking from personal experience, I mean, I've seen that work. And, and the way that it was explained to me was I, I struggled with panic attacks a lot through the years. And I remember somebody telling me it was either a therapist or a psychiatrist. Somebody was telling me, just focus on the breath because if you're breathing, you're not having a heart attack because that was one of my biggest fears. And I think it's a fear of many when they're having a panic attack and they're in that intense fight or flight is I'm dying. Oh my gosh, I can't breathe. My heart's racing so fast. And I just remember saying, someone saying to me, they're like, Doug, if you can talk and you can breathe, you're not having a heart, you're not dying. Right. And I, 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 even to this day, when I experience like intense bouts of anxiety, that's still in the back of my mind, because I just think we go into survival mode. Like you said, we're worried about death in those moments. And if we can just grasp on to that, which again is, is free, like our breath, our ability to breathe and talk and touch is free. And anybody like, you know, for sitting, like can do it. We build that resiliency muscle. We build that adversity muscle. We build uh, that confidence muscle to get through these challenging times, which I think is is one of the staples for for getting through stress in a way that's healthy, that's conducive to the person you want to become in the future, and that can also prevent you from getting physically sick or turning to 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 drugs and alcohol and other things that could you could develop a crippling addiction from from mismanaging stressful situations, stressful moments. And with that said, I, what are some other things like proactively that people could do? Like, I know you mentioned talking about taking care of our health. 
that, that people could do like on a daily basis that could set themselves up to be able to just like indirectly be able to handle stre- the stress response better. We will get you back to this episode of the Adversity Advantage in just one second. But first, wanted to give a quick shout out to our sponsor, Legion. If you're anything like me, you only take the best of the best when it comes to supplements. And you're always looking for those that are also backed by science, use natural sweeteners, and fully transparent with their ingredients. This is why I love the products at Legion, which is also the number one all-natural sports supplement company in the world. I currently am enjoying their vanilla plant protein, which goes into a post-workout smoothie after I work out, or it acts as a quick snack while on the run or between clients and interviews. I think we can all agree that 2021 is a year that we need to make health a priority, which is also why I consistently take their Triumph multivitamin and immune support to ensure that I am doing everything I can to feel my best. So if you want to follow my lead and take the best supplements around that have free shipping and a 100% money back guarantee, go to buylegion.com forward slash Doug and use code Doug to get 20% off your first order. Again, it's buylegion.com forward slash Doug and use code Doug at checkout. Now back to the show. So there's a couple of really good things. I think Continuing on the line of thinking of breath work and doing this intentional breath, breathing, slow breathing, where we're only focused on the feeling of the air coming in and the feeling of the air going out. Even if you do that for just a couple minutes at a time, most people think they have to sit for like 15 to 30 minutes. It's absolutely not the case. Just doing that for two minutes, one minute here, two minutes there, five minutes there, as, as often as you can throughout your day, when you're sitting on the bus, when you're driving in your car, whatever it might be, waiting in a waiting room for something to happen, all of those build on each other. Mm. And so just by doing it, you're retraining your nervous system to remember how to do it more frequently when you're actually in a stressful situation. Right. If you don't practice it on a regular basis, just a couple minutes here and there, if we don't practice it, then when we actually enter into a stressful situation, we don't remember how to tap into that as a skill set. Mm. Same with soothing touch, same with the self-touch stuff we were talking about earlier, and same with empathy itself, right? Empathy itself is a skill set that signals safety to our brains. So by making a empathic connection with another human being, even if you're both wearing masks, if you take the time to make eye-to-eye contact with one another and acknowledge that that other person, that you see that person and that you're sharing space together, even if you can't see each other's mouths, that eye-to-eye contact signals safety to your brain. And that activates the emotional nervous system, specifically in the what's called the anterior insula, that is responsible for empathy. It's a hardwired part of our brain that's responsible for empathy. And this part of the brain then signals to the amygdala that if I have time to empathize with this other human being in front of me, again, I can't possibly be running from a lion, right? Right. It's It's a same response. And I think all of this is based on the principles that we learned from Eric Kandel's Nobel Prize winning work in 2002, which is that practice makes perfect. The more we practice these techniques, of self of self regulation for lack of a better term of the breathing the self touch the resilience training in a moment to moment day to day basis the more we choose to practice those techniques the better we get at them the stronger those synaptic pathways are in our minds on the contrary the more that we practice impulsiveness and instant gratification to distract or numb ourselves from th- stress or distress or eustress or stress in general 
discomfort, challenge, et cetera, whatever you want to describe it as, then the better we get at believing that instant gratification is real. And I think what this really comes down to tying it back to addiction that we talked about earlier is that instant gratification is a fabrication of our minds. Instant gratification is not real because it always comes with side effects, right? And it doesn't matter whether it's you're distracting, if it doesn't matter if we distract ourselves with food, drugs, video games, sex, even work itself, all of them, if they are used as distractions for stress, to avoid dealing with what is causing our stress will result in very negative consequences. Whereas the things like the breath work, the soothing touch, the empathy, those skill sets actually help to tackle what is causing us to feel unsafe from a very fundamentally biological level. That, that makes total sense. Cause I think one of the reasons that a lot of people struggle once they get into recovery from addiction, for instance, is because a lot of times what happens is they just stop using the drugs or the alcohol, whatever they were abusing in the first place. And that's obviously a great first step, but I think taking a, a look at why they were doing that in the first place and dealing with that and coming up with new healthy coping mechanisms is the secret sauce for thriving Absolutely. and longstanding recovery. So let's dive more into addiction while we're on this topic, because I know that's something that you also are an expert in. Now, I know there's a lot of people that will say it, that addiction's biological and that it, there's a, a brain chemistry thing going on. And from my experience personally, I know from when I was abusing drugs, it was more to numb pain, to deal with stress in an unhealthy way, trauma, that sort of thing. And then I just started to stack these bad habits. And then over time, my addiction kind of snowballed where it started with just smoking pot to numb pain. And then I was smoking more of that. Then I turned to Coke and then I turned to pills. And it just was this horrific mountain of drugs that I climbed, if you will, to the point where I was snorting copious amounts of, of Oxycontin up my nose every single day to deal with the same pain that I had started to deal with with the pot, but I had created more pain from my, from my drug use. So in your research and in your experience, like what, what are you seeing? Like, what are your thoughts on what's actually at the foundation of this addiction crisis that we're facing? I mean, I think it's a great question. I, I think that, I think there's a very, you know, it, it comes back to this, to this idea of instant gratification, yeah. right? It comes back to the way that, that we believe and we're taught from, again, it's not our fault. We've been taught this from the youngest of ages that it is possible to, to solve a problem of stress that, or a solve a problem of that's challenging or uncomfortable by with food or with money or with medicine or drugs, right? We're even teaching this to children by saying, oh, well, you can't, you can't focus. So instead of training you how to concentrate, which we've never taught you before, we're gonna give you medicine to take for life. Mm. And, that's, and then we're gonna give you a diagnosis first that says you are unable to focus. And, and, and it doesn't matter whether we've actually considered if this person's ever been taught to focus or not, right? right. We're, just get, we're just doing a symptom analysis assessment and then when we're saying, okay, if you meet these symptom criteria, whether you've been formally taught how to do what we're asking you to do or not, we're going to diagnose you and label you with a disorder. And then we're going to give you a medicine that says that, that tells the person from a very young age, if you don't take this medicine every day, you're not going to be able to function at the level that we expect you to function in society. Right. And that's a hugely disempowering way to bring people into the world as adults. 
right? It's really, I mean, it really trains people from a very, not to say that ADHD doesn't exist, it does for a lot of people. At the same time, there are different ways to approach the use of medicine that don't make people dependent on the medicine for the recovery or for the treatment. So for example, using amphetamine medicine with ADHD in a new way would be to say, hey, you're struggling with attention. If you, we're going to teach you how to concentrate. We're going to give you the education necessary to teach you and empower you to learn to control your attention. Because obviously when you play video games, you're able to focus, which is almost the case with every kid with ADHD is they can focus on their video games, but they can't focus on stuff that bores them in school. And we're going to say, we're going to give you something boring to, or that you consider boring to do or that you don't want to do and that you don't want to focus on. And then we're going to give you a medicine that shows you what it feels like to focus or technology, right? Like Apollo could be a technology that does it. We're going to say, okay, take this, try this as a tool that will show you what it feels like to focus on something that you didn't think you could focus on before. All of a sudden, the approach to the, to the tool is very different. The tool is a teacher where the goal is, what can I learn about how to control my attention and how to focus and concentrate from what this medicine or this tool is teaching me? Not, oh, now I have this crutch I can rely on for the rest of my life to treat a disorder that I've been told I have. And the kids don't know the difference, you know, and this is the same for depression, PTSD, et cetera. And it's all based on this belief that instant gratification is a real thing that doesn't have consequences. This is the biggest flaw in our entire societal treatment of addiction and we see it because money itself, the feeling of earning money has actually been shown to stimulate the same reward centers in our brain that cocaine stimulates, right? So this is one of the most fundamentally addictive things that, that is legal, that is not only legal, it's encouraged by everyone as to put as a primary focus in, on their lives is to earn and accumulate wealth. And it's at the fundamental core of our society. You know, what, what should be at the core of our society is probably empathy right. and focusing on connection and building meaningful connection to other human beings. And, and that should never be at the, ex and, and earning money should never be at the expense of that. Right. But we don't have that standard that we teach to people, at least in, not in Western society. And so that creates a lot of, you know, when you, I mean, when you think about it from a evolutionary biology perspective, in terms of what we're teaching the brain we're teaching the brain addiction from the very beginning. So why would we be surprised that people seek or, or engage in addictive behaviors when they're stressed out? We shouldn't be. We should just look at it from a different perspective and say, okay, well, how do we teach something different from a younger age? And ho right. I'm hopeful that we can do that. And, and it seems what you're saying is education is, is crucial when these kids or anybody's really getting any form of, of medication for something that's for a symptom or a problem that they're facing to be able to understand why they're taking it. And then also maybe to help them know that this isn't going to be something they need to take for the rest of their lives. Hopefully they can, they can be used as a bridge, if you will. And then once they get on the other side of that bridge and they've developed different coping mechanisms, or they've been able to, to learn better, more efficiently, whatever the case may be, that they can kind of wean off that medication and then go on to, to live a life where they're now using a lot of the new tools that they've been taught to learn better, or perform better, whatever it is that they were using that medication for in the first place. And so, and I think you're right. I, I think at the core of it, a big part of it is this need for instant gratification, 
whether it's to feel better right away when with your numbing pain, or you want a, a kids who want to fit in, they want to do whatever they can to get community. Right. And they'll fit in with whoever, no matter what the choices these, this group of kids is making, or, you know, maybe they're doing something illegal to make money because they want to make money and they'll do whatever they can to buy something or, or whatever that case may be. So if you get that, ex- to, and to get that acceptance too, as you ex- said, right. The exactly. feeling of it being accepted by your community is a huge part of this. Right. And, and it's everything. So I guess I want to dive more into the solution to that in that I know a lot of the alternative ways that you talk about, whether it be plant medicine, psychedelics, even the Apollo, it, it, I think if I understand correctly, it forces us to develop a deeper connection within ourselves. But what I want to I want to preface this by saying, again, I'm pretty novice when it comes to plant medicine and and a lot of this psychedelic stuff. I've I've never done it. And I've honestly haven't really read too much into it other than a few people that I know that have have experience in it. And I think where a lot of people in recovery, so to speak, can maybe be turned off by it is now like in prior, you're saying that these drugs, whether it's ketamine, different forms of psychedelics, plant medicines can be abused and then it can potentially ruin somebody's life. Now people are saying, well, Hey, you can actually use it to heal addiction. So can you explain that for my audience a little bit, just so that, because I'm sure there's people who are confused by this, this whole narrative right now that's going on and it's a thing. So I want to educate people from somebody who's an expert in it. Absolutely. And, And I think, you know, it's, it's to say that number one, that the way we use a tool is critical to the outcome that we get from using that tool. If you have the best, if you have the the worst mechanic in the world with the best tools, they will likely break your car, mm. right? And if you think about the highest, you know, the, what the body is, the body is like our bodies are like the most the most high performance vehicles that exist. There is nothing more efficient than the human body. There is nothing more powerful as in terms of a known, you know, machine in the world and than the human body. And so we need to make sure that we, that we take care of the body, which means not just putting good, good quality, the highest quality fuel into it, but also making sure we take care of it from a mental and emotional perspective and the way we use that fuel and the way we use the tools around us. There are, the the world is so vast. There are infinite tools for us to use, right? So, you know, the general approach going back to Hippocratic medicine, which, you know, Hippocrates was the founder of Western medicine thousands of years ago. And the general approach that, and we all take, for those who don't know, all doctors take a Hippocratic oath that was from Hippocrates thousands of years ago that really kicked off the practice of, you know, in radical inquiry and, and scientific clinical practice of Western medicine, which is first do no harm. That's how the Hippocratic oath starts. And this is really critical because what, when we give somebody The whole point of medicine and healing from the perspective of the healer is to empower the the person who seeks to be healed to heal themselves, which means that they are not dependent on me or the health system or or the tools themselves for their healing long-term. It means that they might use a tool for a certain amount of time for a certain benefit, or they might use me or work with me or another healer or doctor or nurse or whoever, or therapist, or they might, you know, work with some other path in the healthcare system, but they're not dependent on it for the long haul. And in some cases people have to be, 
because they're already too far down the path of illness. In other cases, especially when we're talking about preventative care, working with you know people from the early phases of life, there are lots of opportunities to educate and empower people to learn how to heal themselves more effectively. So when we think about psychedelic medicines or meditation, mindfulness practices, yoga, empathy practices, self-touch, or even think technology using technology like Apollo, these, medis- these tools are all useful for that purpose of empowering us to learn how to heal ourselves more effectively when they're used with that goal and intention in mind. However, we already know that almost anything can become addictive, gambling, sex, work, World of Warcraft, video games, right? All the way through to medications can all become addictive. And meanwhile, things like sex, work, healthy balance of sex, work, and enjoyable activities can also, even working out can become an addiction for some people, right? So, and we do see that. So, but, but a healthy balance of those things creates a very healthy and sustainable life for the long term that improves the health of ourselves and of those around us. And so it's really more about, about balance and approaching these activities and the tools with the idea that the tool is a teacher and the, t- the purpose of the tool is to help me engage in my life more effectively, to help me adapt to whatever challenges may come more effectively, not to escape, numb, or distract myself from the stress or challenges that are facing me right now. And I'm so glad you you said it like that, because I think intentionality of being intentional with it should be like the foundation of it all. It's like, why are you doing this? Because I think the argument, like the devil's advocate would say, would have said, well, what do you tell somebody like when somebody says that, yeah, you can just go use plant medicine. You can go do this, or do that. Like, how do you know that somebody's not just going to go and just eat mushrooms in the woods and expect to heal themselves from trauma, addiction, PTSD, what have you. And I think that's why what you said in, in making sure that you're doing it for the right reasons, like having an outcome in mind, having a goal, I think that's that's in line with, with where you want to go in your life, I think is super powerful and very important. So I guess I want to dive into this a little bit more because now I'm, I'm kind of fascinated. So are there, is there like a checklist that, that people that you want people to have if they're looking to engage in something like this? And what I mean by that is personally, like if it were me and somebody was asking for advice, I don't think if I would recommend somebody who can't maintain any form of recovery and they just don't have a baseline yet to just go and and do plant medicine or whatever, because I don't, I just don't think that that could necessarily be safe. And again, I'm not an expert in this, so I could be completely wrong, or I, I wouldn't recommend somebody who just wants to go do it just to do it, go do it either. I think there has to be like a, a thing in mind or like some sort of questionnaire they fill out within themselves and they talk to a professional. So what kind of things would you like people to see before they come to somebody like you and they want to engage in this type of practice? We will get you back to this episode of the Adversity Advantage in just one second. But first, I want to let you know this podcast is brought to you by Athletic Greens. If you're anything like me, you have a lot going on and it can be challenging at times to maintain effective nutritional habits and give your body the nutrients it needs to thrive. This is where Athletic Greens really helps me. Their all-in-one superfood powder is nutrient-packed and is included in my daily smoothie without fail or serves as a quick pick-me-up in between appointments and interviews. 
Personally, I have noticed that it helps with my digestion, energy, and immune system. One tasty scoop of Athletic Greens contains 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, including a multivitamin, multimineral, probiotic, green superfood blend, and more. Plus, they are committed to helping people strengthen their immune systems. Athletic Greens is doubling down on supporting your immune system with everything going on in the world right now. This includes their offer for my listeners. They are offering my audience a free, free one-year supply of vitamin D, which many people are deficient in, yet is crucial for immune system support. And they are also giving away five free travel packs with your first purchase if you visit my link today. You'll basically never have to buy vitamin D again. Simply visit athleticgreens.com forward slash Doug and join health experts, athletes, and health-conscious go-getters around the world who make a daily commitment to their health every day. Again, simply visit athleticgreens.com forward slash Doug and get your free year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs today. Now back to the show. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and for the record, you know, most of us who do this kind of work, I'm also, you know, I'm a ketamine trained ketamine assisted psychotherapist, which is ketamine is the only legal psychedelic medicine in the in currently that's legal in all, in all 50 states and in most countries worldwide. It's been around for about 70 years. It's very short acting, very safe when used properly at the low doses that we use it for. And I'm also a trained MDMA assisted psychotherapist, which is currently the, the leading medicine for post-traumatic stress disorder that's going through phase three trials with the FDA right, right now with anticipated 2023 approval. These medicines are extremely powerful. They are, you know, when we think about how restrictive it is to go to a doc, to get an opiate prescribed for pain management, for instance, the reason why it's so restrictive and probably should be more restrictive is because opiates are very powerful. And if used properly to manage acute pain, pain in the moment from an acute injury or pain that's due to a surgical procedure, those medicines work great. They're like miracle drugs. However, when they're misused and they get prescribed to people long-term for chronic pain management, for which they're mostly not indicated, then we, we actually make people more likely to abuse them and ruin their lives. And without proper education on how to use these medicines effectively, people can get very, very sick and it is, and the medicines are very dangerous. I would, I would say that psychedelic medicines are not like opioids per se, and that they're not sedatives, but they are like opioids in that they require a tremendous amount of care to administer. And especially in people who already have a diagnosis of a mental illness, these medicines are very powerful because the way they work can be basically summarized in the word psychedelic. So what psychedelic means is it doesn't refer to any specific drug. It actually refers to a state of mind that goes back to a lot of what Carl Jung, the famous psychoanalyst and, and Freud talked about, which is coming, showing ourselves our subconscious. So psych, psyche means the mind, delos means to show so you take so in when you enter into a psychedelic state, whether it's because of breathing, meditation, or yoga, or float tank induced psychedelic state, or whether it's induced by a drug like ketamine or MDMA, you're enter or plant medicine, you're entering into a state where your subconscious, all of that huge amount of material that has accumulated over over our whole lives and potentially even from our ancestors that was passed on through our parents is now available to us to access. And that information is normally hidden from us because it's not it's deemed not useful for our day-to-day -day functioning. It is available to us in our dreams. It is available to us when we enter into these psychedelic altered, what we call altered states of mind. 
So when you subject yourself to a medicine, for instance, that in that exposes you to that content in your subconscious and that content that's stored up there, maybe a past trauma, it may be many past traumas. It may be things you don't even remember happening to you. It may be really scary stuff that is hard to deal with and hard to work through. If you don't have help, then we always, that's why we always recommend having a guide who's well-trained with you, ideally someone who's, who's clinically trained, but there are some folks who are trained in Eastern and tribal practices, you know, passed on their tribal approaches for you know, hundreds of years that are also very qualified to facilitate these kinds of experiences. But having someone to guide you is critical who knows how to navigate the space because most people do not know what can come up. And this also happens in Vipassana retreats or intense meditation retreats where people will go and meditate or do a silent retreat for a week. People can have these very strange experiences where things they didn't remember or past trauma from childhood will come up. And if they don't have support, they don't know how to deal with it. And it can actually be very, very upsetting and re-traumatizing, which actually sets you back. And so this is the whole, so, so we don't encourage people to use these medicines recreationally at all. In fact, we really highly encourage people to seek out someone who's, who's trained in the, in the process, who can guide you down a path of medicine or not medicine. And if it's medicine, then you have a guide. If it's not medicine, then you have a guide and you can have somebody who can help you explore some of the uncharted territory of your mind. Got it. And, and I think it's, it's super important to be able to tap into the subconscious when all your past traumas, your past pains, your past memories, your past patterns, your past behaviors, all that's like stored there. And, and I think like EMDR can be something that can be very resourceful for that as well. But I think it seems what you're saying is that plant medicine can intensify that if you will, a little bit more. So it's like a catalyst. Okay. It's a, it's a, think of it as like a chemical catalyst. So you can access these states with lots of different natural techniques, but if you take a psychedelic medicine, you're just speeding up the process tremendously from a biochemical level. Right. So, and I have a couple follow-up questions. So one is, is there a way to know how somebody's going to respond to the psychedelics or the plant medicine or the ketamine? And I, when I say that is we know that addiction and intense trauma can really alter the brain. And I guess, people might be wondering, well, how do I know that if I take this, it's not going to mess either mess me up even more. And then so I want to touch on something that you, you brought up that let's just say somebody goes deep into their subconscious and they, they see all this past pain, trauma stuff they didn't even know was there. Like I know they have support during the, cer- during the ceremony or during the time they're going through this, but how does somebody maintain more long-term support to deal with like say they, they found out they had some crazy intense trauma that they had no idea was there, but it's something that's going to require potentially months or even years of therapy, years of work. Like how does somebody set themselves up for that? So I can tell you what we recommend in general, which is that anybody who goes through this kind of, this kind of experience or who's planning to go through one of these experiences has a therapist that they feel safe with. And whether if you're going to have an experience like this with any facilitator or guide, the single most important thing is that you feel safe with that person and that you don't feel judged by that person. If you feel judged or not safe emotionally, mentally, physically, or in any way, then find someone else. 
safety is your sense of safety is the most important thing. And if you don't feel safe, your intuition will let you know that. So the whole point of this practice is to learn to trust our intuition and trusting that intuition is also trusting our ability to self-heal. So it all kind of comes back to that. So, so people, you know, when we do this work with people, whether we're their primary therapist or not, we've always recommend that everybody has a primary therapist that they feel safe and comfortable with talking about whatever comes up, that they have appointments scheduled afterwards, which is called the integration period, where anything that you've experienced, you can then go back to and ideally remember and integrate those, those learnings from your past experience into your present experience and where, what you want your life to be, right? Ideally, if you enter these, if you, if you're using these medicines respectfully, you're entering every session with a very firm intention. And that intention is what guides your experience. And then afterwards you integrate what you've learned about yourself and the world and, you know, surrounding that intention into your day-to-day life practice. And most people who undergo these treatments will tell you that about 20, 10 to 20% of the healing comes from the medicine ex- experience itself and 80 to 90% comes from the integration process that transforms who we are afterwards by practicing what we've, what we've learned. And using so it's almost te- like the key, it's almost like the key to get into the door of healing, if you will, like once you, it gives you the key to unlock it. Then once you open the door, you got all this stuff. Now that you have to kind of manage that you've found from going into that door. Right. Like, and, and imagine it like a teacher, right? Imagine you can't remember the last time you felt calm and safe and, and, and safe within your own skin. All of a sudden you have a guide or, you know, of some sort walk you through an experience with either breath work or Apollo or meditation or psychedelics. And you have an experience where all of a sudden for the first time in maybe decades, as long as you can remember, and this happens with our folks with PTSD all the time where they say, oh my goodness, I can't remember the last time I felt this safe, that I actually felt safe within myself. And then all of a sudden, that person has the opportunity to say, oh, well, it was the medicine that that caused this for me. Therefore, I need the medicine to get back here, which is the, which is the misstep. That's what leads to addiction and dependence. And by externalizing the healing experience to the medicine, whereas the therapist guide should ideally teach that person and, and reflect back to them. It's, it's actually not the medicine. The medicine is showing you that you can get here on your own by, by doing your own work. You can get here on your own. Now, you know, it's, and we call that experiential learning. It's now that you know what this feels like to feel safe and calm in your own skin. Now the medicine in throughout the integration process, as it continues to unfold, will help you to practice getting back there on your own naturally. And that is fundamentally the process of healing. So it's just this basic understanding of becoming more self-reliant, if you will, on your ability to manage your emotions, manage your health, manage past traumas in a way that's not solely relying on the on, on a health professional. And I think there's a lot of truth to that, to the importance of empowerment as a human being, because I think sometimes with disease or with, with a lot of these illnesses, we can feel trapped and helpless. And we're told that we're going to stay here the rest of our lives. And while obviously some diseases can be life-threatening, crippling, 
and just completely leave and leave you helpless for a long period of time or for a lifetime that a lot of times we can kind of go the other way with that by developing uh, a new pathway for ourselves to lean more into empowerment and make better choices to deal with a lot of the stuff that we haven't dealt with or to improve the way we're dealing with our lives in the present to be able to set to, to set ourselves up better for the future. And what I'm hearing you say is it seems that like this practice or engaging in this type of experience needs to be very individual and needs to have, like, you need to have like, people around you, I guess, a, a strong support system. And it has to feel right for the person to know that this is just right for them and where they want to go on their journey, their path of recovery or healing PTSD. And it has to be obviously clinically supervised. And it's not just as simple as just going in. You don't, you're not advocating for anyone to do this recreationally because it's not safe, which I agree with as well. And, and with that said, I invite people listening to this, you know, maybe somebody has been curious about this. I'm sure there's people who have, I mean, it's a thing, like it's talked about a lot to, to just do some more research on your own, educate yourself, you know, whether you contact Dr. Rabin or you, or somebody else that's, that's well-known in the space that has a clinical background to get more informed on whether this is something that's good for you. Again, it's not going to be for everybody, but if it feels right for you, you know, feel free to, to learn and dive more into the research of this stuff. And I want to, I want to kind of end our conversation, if you will, talking about something that you've mentioned here a few times, and that's Apollo, because I think for everyone that can be a real safe modality of healing of dealing with anxiety, stress, sleeping better, and even improving your energy levels. So talk about Apollo, talk about why you decided to start it and how Apollo can help with basically all the stuff we've talked about during this conversation. Sure. Basically the the reason why we started doing the research behind Apollo in, in 2014 through 2018 was because people with mental illnesses from depression to PTSD to anxiety disorders were just not getting better at the rates that we were hoping they would. And we saw this in the literature. We saw this in our own patients, the tools that we had, the Western, a lot of the Western prescriptions and even the psychotherapy were just not cutting it for a lot of people. And people were self-medicating as a result because they weren't getting what they needed from the traditional Western approach. And so, you know, we were thinking, well, why is this happening, right? Like, why are people not getting better? And perhaps possible that we could do something differently at the core of of the safety response and the fear response in the body that could help people recover more effectively. And so, you know, looking at the medications and looking at psychedelic medicines, you know, these medicines are very powerful and they are, and, and many of the plant medicines, like we're talking about are extremely powerful and useful for certain people, but they're by no means good for everyone. And there are, for example, children, most children, many elderly folks, pregnant women, and people with uh, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, uh, psychotic disorder histories, and that kind of thing. Many of these people are not good candidates for psychedelic medicine for many reasons. And so what we thought was, all right, what can we do? What can we give people to take out of the office that gives them a lot of the benefits of feeling safe in their own skin, similar to the way that that soothing touch would from a loved one, a hug from a loved one, or having a nice eye-to-eye empathic therapy conversation with a friend or with a therapist, you know, how do we give you that or the, or the effect of deep breathing, for instance, without you having to learn how to do it? Is there a way to, to provide that 
to the body. And so we started to evaluate electricity, sound, and we eventually settled on soothing touch, which is, which is what the Apollo delivers is a very gentle vibration to the skin through a wearable you can wear on your ankle or your wrist or your arm. And I'm wearing one right now on my ankle. I wear it you know, basically every day because it helps me recover from the stress of just having a generally busy life. And I think that when we originally developed it, we developed it for people who had mental illnesses. But then when we made our, we started doing our first studies on healthy people and started making prototypes that we wore in our regular lives to test it out. And we realized that us and our friends and family love the thing. And we're like, this is like a real game changer for helping us feel better, sleep better, focus better at work when we're stressed out and tired. And, you know, cause we're all working hard. And that is a big part of why it became a consumer product, which has now been out since January of 2020. And, and I've tried it. You and I were talking about this before we recorded. And I think the, the one thing that is cool about it is you've seen a lot of the, the wearable technology, whether it's Whoop, Apple Watch, Fitbit. And I think these, these technologies are, are great. But I think what separates the Apollo from these other ones is that you're required to kind of do some level of work and then read data based on the level of work you're doing with these other devices where the Apollo, you just essentially, you go into the app and you press whatever modality you want based on how you're feeling or the outcome you're trying to get. And the Apollo does the work for you. So walk people through like what they can expect. Let's just say they're interested in an Apollo or like what kind of things the Apollo actually does within the app or within the device to help them with stress, sleep better, anxiety, that sort of thing. Sure. And, and that's a great point is that Apollo is not a tracker. Yeah. It, we track how you use it and stuff so we can help improve the user experience. But Apollo is the first of what we would call the third generation of wearable technology, which is digital therapies. Mm. So it is a tool, a therapy tool that you can, that we can wear that sends a signal to the body that does something like similar, you know, it, it, does, it does this experiential, what we call bottom up learning. So it shows us that we have the ability within as, as little as a few minutes to as much as, a, you know, a couple hours, depending on the person, but by using it, it in, in throughout your day-to-day -day life, it shows us that it's relatively easy for us to feel calm in situations that you, and safe in situations that used to stress us out. And when you feel, when you learn to feel safe in situations that used to feel threatening, all of a sudden you're rewiring pathways in your brain that remind you that you're safe in those situations and the body does not need to react in those situations, which goes back to what we were talking about at the very beginning of this conversation. So, the, you know, basically it, it short circuits that pathway that is overactive in the amygdala that says, I have too much stimulation. I have too much stimulation firing off, firing off. You're in danger to oh, actually I'm firing off, but wait, I can feel this gentle, soothing touch on my leg or my arm. If I have time to feel this like a deep breath, I can't possibly be running from a lion right now. Let's reevaluate this threat signal. Oh, wait, I'm actually safe. I'm not under threat. Okay, let's take a breath. Let's go on to the next thing. And so that, cre that basically creates an interruption that we could do with deep breathing or soothing touch. But if we haven't learned how to do that, then it becomes very difficult to engage in those techniques. And Apollo has the ability to help train us to remember how to do that better. And we actually see a learning effect, which is really interesting. So the more people use Apollo, the better it works. And the more they feel able to be resilient and cope with more intense stressors that they used to feel very challenging.
So, so there is an effect that grows over time. And I think that's the effect that most people say they notice the most often that is the most beneficial long-term. So it works like a training tool, just like breath work, just like meditation, but there are people who do experience benefit in the moment with use as well. I, I personally do, but everybody's, everybody's a little different. And, and it makes sense, right? Because we were talking at the beginning on the importance of, of the breath and touch when it comes to dealing with the fight or flight response, when it comes to dealing with anxiety and, and then I can imagine this, this helps when say you're in a, on a zoom meeting or you're at work or you're in, at a family gathering and you start to become stressed or experience that those feelings of, of panic. And you can't just start ask somebody to kind of touch here. You, you can't, you know, just start doing breath work. I mean, I guess you could, but I think it, a simpler, less like more efficient way. If you have the Apollo on is it's on, and then you're, you're automatically experiencing that sense of touch and you're able to develop that mind body connection to know that you're safe and you're feeling okay, which again is the framework for getting through anxious moments. As we were talking about at the beginning, like that's what kind of builds our ability to navigate through the fight or flight in a way that's healthy and congruent to becoming a stronger version of ourselves. And you're right. Like take COVID out things like depression, anxiety, addiction have not gotten any better. You know, all that stuff has continued to rise with, I think, I, I think as a result of a combination of a lot of things, I mean, you talked about instant gratification. That's definitely one thing. I think it's just our ability as human beings to, to not be able to, to manage stress in a healthy way. Again, because I think people think of stress as this super negative thing that it's almost like it's, it's almost that people develop in an immense amount of shame about themselves when they're going through stressful moments, because they're like, why am I feeling this way? I should be happy. I other, my friends aren't feeling like this. And then people respond impulsively and seek instant gratification to feel better or to be more like their friends that it sends, it sends them down this vicious cycle and they become more stressed and their life ends up falling uh, apart more as, as a result. So because well, those challenges yeah. and stressors don't go away. Right. If you ignore them, you have to, you have to tackle them. You have yeah. to face them head on. Yeah. And the problem is that people just don't, and then they just start to build up in our subconscious. And then five years go by and somebody just unfortunately has like a meltdown and they're like, well, where'd this come from? And I don't, and a lot of times it's not from that one moment, right? Sure. There's traumatic experiences that can shape something like that, but what in many cases, it's just a buildup of the inability to, to deal with a lot of the stressors that have gone on in our lives in a way that is positive. And so, you know, you've talked about a lot of great approaches during our conversation. You've, you've spoken about obviously the breath, taking care of ourselves, touch the importance of not seeking instant gratification. Obviously we talked about the Apollo, we, we dove into psychedelics and, and plant medicine, and I'm sure people they're going to be intrigued to, to dive more into your work and learn more about what you have going on, potentially get an Apollo. Where can people do that? So you can get an Apollo at apolloneuro.com or apolloneuroscience.com. It's A-P-O-L-L-O-N-E-U-R-O.com. And you can find out more about, about me at drdave.io, which is my personal website. As well, if you want to learn about some of the psychedelic work that we do, I have a talk show that will be coming out as a podcast of its own this year 
called the Psychedelic News Hour, and you can find the first three recorded episodes at the psychedelicnewshour.com. Awesome. Well, uh, I, I thank you for coming on. This has been a great conversation. It's been enlightening for me to learn, especially about the plant medicine and, and the psychedelic side, which is something that I really don't know a lot about. And people have talked to me about it, but again, like I'd rather interview an expert and somebody who has a lot of experience in this to, to talk about it versus me just saying stuff based off of only stuff that I could even think of based on my experience, which I don't have a lot of. So I'm glad we talked about that. And, and for those listening, we dove into a lot on stress, the stress response, fight or flight, anxiety. We talked about addiction. We talked about recovery. We talked about mental health. There was a lot we, 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 we unpacked. So this is going to be one of those episodes you might want to listen to a few times just because there was a lot in there. And what I want you to do is I want you to go ahead and follow Dr. Dave. So follow him at Dr. David Rabin on Instagram and at Dave Rabin on Twitter. And what I would like you also to do is to take a screenshot with your biggest takeaway, something that maybe he said about plant medicine, something that he said about anxiety, stress, the Apollo, tag him, tag myself, because we'd love to hear from you. We'd love to hear feedback. And we once again, thank you for listening to this episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst, and we'll see you next time.